the marinade. There's no O in marinade. Let's try it one more time. Ready? One, <laughs> two, three. <laughs> the marinade. Marrow. Marrow. Marinade. Bone marinade. The marinade. The marinade. With Jason Earl. Welcome to The Marinade with Jason Earl, a free-flowing conversation about the creative process with creative people. This is episode 84, and our guest is Caleb Johnson. Caleb is the author of one of my favorite novels of the last few years, y'all. The book is called Treeborn. If you haven't read it, go to your local bookstore or bookshop.org. And get a copy. I absolutely loved this book and lived in it and cannot recommend it enough. It's always a treat to speak with an author whose work I love. This was so much fun and I learned a ton from this conversation. I'm excited to bring it to you, everyone, my conversation with Caleb Johnson. congratulating you on being a new dad that's so exciting oh thanks man i appreciate it yeah so how does that i guess we get right into the, the chaos so how does are we going or are we recording right away yeah if, you, if you're cool with it we just roll yeah how's the how's the sound i'm, I'm out in my writing room so i'm a little away from the the wi-fi but it's it's generally okay am i coming through you're, com- you're coming through great and it's smooth yeah okay cool yeah, right. see, yeah. sorry to, sorry to uh, derail you there but just gonna ask and make sure no it's all good i appreciate it i would i would say something i um and that's part of this whole thing that's difficult is like you don't have control over the other person's audio you know like i just recorded with todd snyder and it was just like this huge honor and thrill to get to record with todd snyder and uh, at first i just couldn't hear anything and i was like damn it i've been waiting this since i started this thing right like this moment and i have no control over what's going on over there but it ended up beautifully so um for the most part it's worked out but anyway fatherhood chaotic how's that impacting your process then uh, i mean there's just no process right now i guess you know uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah no i i mean i don't i'm a pretty um I like a schedule. I, I like routine, you know, sort of in my, my work and my process. And, uh, I don't have that luxury, uh, at the moment, you know, I haven't had it for the last four months since Felix was born, which, you know, I expected. Um, and I'd kind of like prepared myself for that change, you know? Um, but it's still, 
you know, a bit of a shock to the system. And especially for somebody like me who kind of thrives off that routine, you know, it's not always easy to just sort of accept that and say, okay, today he's not going to sleep and he's going to just like be an agent of chaos as we call him. And uh, I'm not going to get to open a project I'm working on at all. You know, I can think about it off and on when, when I have a second that doesn't require, you know, attention to him, but um, I've just had to, you know, I'm, I'm still trying to make peace with it, to be honest with you. I'm sure I will be for a long time. So when you're, all right. So if, you know, it's chaotic and, and there's an idea that, or maybe a project that you're working on, an idea that's in your head, um, are you just keeping it up there in your head or are you like doing a voice memo while changing a diaper with the other hand or like what, what does that look like? How are you keeping those ideas? Yeah, um, I'll type notes into my phone, which I hate to admit and I hate that I'm doing that because I was such a, before I had a kid, I was such a big proponent of carrying an actual notebook and pen and paper in my back pocket and I would pull that out, you know, and jot things down, but it's just easier, you know, to one handed pick up the phone and, and type something in, in the notes and then, you know, email it to myself later. Um, so I do that, you know, um, I'm lucky, I'm lucky in, in one respect to, uh, have had a bigger project kind of working and stewing and, and sort of messing with for a while before Felix got here. So it's sort of okay or more okay for me not to be composing or, or revising as much, you know, and to just sort of think about that project and, you know, um, whatever problems I'm having with it, kind of try to untangle those in my mind, you know, rather than being at the computer. So it's, and I, I planned it when I, when we knew we were going to have a kid, I was like, okay, I got to get to a place in this project where that feels okay for mm -hmm. me or else my attention is not going to be here with him and, and all the things that need to be done. I'm going to be just trying to get to this project all the time. So um, I'm more okay with it because of where I got to sort of pause, you know, mm -hmm. composition and revision before he got here. It, it's sort of good timing, I guess, if, if there's ever going to be for, for that. Right. Well, you know, talking about big projects, I mean, I've, I've told you and everybody on the show has heard me say, and uh, heard me sing this, is that uh, I just love, love, love Treeborn, your novel. And, you know, since I read it, I've been looking forward to this conversation. Um, is Hi. that you're welcome. And, and I, I appreciate it so much. It was one of those books that I mean, I, I'm constantly reading and I, and I, I love the written word. It's, but sometimes, you know, sometimes a book comes along that you're like, you, you don't let go of for a long time. And I mean, that book's several years old now and I, I haven't let go of it, you know? And, and what's interesting, I love how it came into my life too, because Lee Baines told me he was, he was reading a draft of it. And I'm such, Lee's such a big part of this show and he's been such a good friend of the show and I'm such a huge fan of his music. So it's just one of those beautiful things where this person whose art I respect so much says, oh, wait, I got this guy. You got to get down on. Wait till this book comes out. Um, and I want to get to that that whole thing in a minute, too. But but I, can you say whether the, the big project you're talking about is another novel or can you speak to that? Yeah, yeah, it's another novel. Um, yep, it is. Um, I don't know how much I want to say about it because it's in such sort of early stages that it'll it'll change inevitably, you know, I've learned that lesson the hard way, sort of talking too much about 
one of these bigger projects in the early stages and then it turns out nothing like that later you know and and um but it's it's set in southern appalachia it's very much concerned with um the the area you know this corner of north of western north carolina where i live um and and climate change um and extinction and um you know nature and and family sort of you know it's not autobiographical by any means but it's certainly um things that are very much at the front of my mind and and sort of part of my daily existence are are bleeding their way onto the page which i think is for me at least it it, it happens you know not intentionally necessarily but but the longer i spend with a project the more those things tend to bleed over how comfortable are you with that i know like you know i've when i write i i, I find that so much of what i'm writing is like uh it is it's coming out that way it is very much i'm leaving a lot of me on the page and like i've got a uh, I've never written a novel. I'm almost done with the first draft of my first novel. And it, um, it, it has made me kind of uncomfortable how much of me came out on the page. How comfortable are you with that being the case? I'm pretty comfortable with it, man, because I tend to work from such a place of imagination. So that stuff is like, when it does bleed over, it's not necessarily like a one-to-one -one with something in my life. Like, unless you were somebody like Lee Baines, who is one of my best friends and first readers, you know, mm -hmm. and who I talk to all the time about whatever I'm working on, you know, he can pick those things out and, and sort of like pin them to something more autobiographical. But, you know, even members of my family who I, they don't read things in progress, you know, they don't read them until they're published. They're not going to be able to, to figure it out. So I have that sort of uh, curtain of fiction, you know, <laughs> like plausible deniability of, of that, which is, which is nice and makes me worry less, I guess. That's comforting. And I think several authors I've talked to say the same kind of thing, right? Where it's like, it's almost like there's more of you're thinking it's, it's more you than and the people around you than you realize. And, and I think as I, the deeper I go into it and so much change, like you said, like I had this, concept in my head of what this was going to look like and then it's has just gone in so many different directions that i did not expect and i fell in love with this one character that i thought was just going to be a minor character and she's i think now she should be considered the protagonist and just all these things that i did not expect and it seems like that those two things are are consistent with most authors i talk to but one of the things that i'm i'm not I haven't found yet is like a, a clear template for a process necessarily. So let's say pre Felix and when Felix and it becomes less chaotic in your perfect world, in your routine, like what does your process look like when you're tackling a big project like that? I think you kind of have though, man, just to hear that brief little comment about, about your book, because for me, what my, project is when I'm when it comes to writing fiction at least is it's all super intuitive and it's mm -hmm. tends to be faster and definitely way messier at first mm -hmm. and I used to really beat myself up about that uh and be resistant you know like I, I wanted to try to make myself slow down and polish and edit and revise as I as I move forward through an early draft because I heard these 
writers I admire say they did that, you know, or people I knew did worked that way. And, and I reached a point with Treeborn where it was just like, all right, if you're ever going to finish a draft of this, you just got to like lower your head, power through, accept that it's going to be messy and need more work. Because to me, and this is what I tell my students all the time, the, the real work in writing is revision, you know. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, you got to have some bit of commitment and endurance to get that first, you know, finished, quote unquote, draft down. Yeah. But, man, there's a lot of le work left to do after that, you know, mm -hmm. and, and that's where where the real magic happens for me, at least. So so. Yeah, from a process standpoint, when it comes to fiction, especially, but really all prose, um, I tend to be quick and messy at first. And, and then I'm like, OK, I've got I think I have most everything down on the page that I need. And now it's a matter of what's got to go, what's got to be moved around, what's maybe got to be um, amplified in some way and what's got to be sort of played down a little more. Um, what, what moments, what scenes, you know, what sections and and that's. I mean, that's not fun for, for me to right, be honest right, with you, right. but it's been pivotal for me to accept, to understand that about myself and my process and to accept it instead of like fighting it tooth and nail, you know, because when I was fighting it more, it was mu a much more miserable process than, yeah. than it got to be later. Yeah. That's a lot of heavy lifting. So are you like getting up in the morning and having your coffee and, and sitting straight down to work with that? In Like I said, in a perfect world, if you weren't if you didn't have chaos at the moment um or yeah 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 that what it looks like yeah i like mornings man i really yeah. do um i mean this is not you know original to to say but uh i think it's it's certainly true for me is that the earlier i can get up and the less i can let the the world in mm -hmm. the better day riding i'm gonna have you know yeah. so that means like no phone no social media no email no websites I like to read for news or entertainment, you know, it really means, yeah, just like chugging a little bit of that coffee and opening up whatever project I'm, I'm putting my attention to and, and getting into it. Um, I'm not always good at it. Um, you know, I don't always succeed, but that's my, that's my aim and goal is to, is to do that every morning um, as early as possible. You know, like I've, I went through stretches with Treeborn and I even went through stretches with other projects, you know, um, in the last few years since, since Treeborn was out where, you know, I was getting up at like four, like well before mm -hmm. daylight and, uh, coming out to my writing room or my office, wherever it was and, and just getting started. And, um, it helps me with the rest of the day too, because even if I don't have the best day of work, I at least got something done mm -hmm. and sort of no matter what plays out later, like maybe I get to come back to it later in the day, you know, cause I've got a free hour or whatever, but maybe I don't. But at the end of the day, when I go to bed, I'm not kind of kicking myself and saying, well, you got nothing done today, you know, mm -hmm. um, because I've, I've made sure first thing that I got something done, you know, I, I moved the needle a little bit. That man, yes. I mean, all of that resonates so much with me. And I, I was thinking just today as I was preparing for this and was thinking about how the the most productive I've been probably in my life writing wise was the, about this time last year during quarantine, because it just like I, I was still working, I was still teaching remotely middle school kids, but it wasn't the same, right? It was like three or four hours a day that I was in front of kids. And I had until like noon every day that I, you know, I had work to do, but for the most part, I could get up at my normal time, 
and then I could just do the work and having that space and, and, and being disciplined to get up and do it led to just that repetition led to more and better work. And it, it was that morning, those morning hours that, that did it for me. Because by this point in the day, like here we are at 315 Eastern time. I'm I'm done you know I might jot a few ideas down here you know here or there but like not usually by this point in the day my brain is just like nah put a baseball same, game on same I'm yeah yeah I'm I'm yeah I'm totally with you it's not <laughs> it's not happening I can't and my friends make fun of me I'm not a, a night owl at all like I can't even for getting work I just go to bed or <laughs> have a hard time staying up late unless it's something I really need to stay up late for. So I, I'm, I'm definitely not going to have the kind of clear headedness to, to do any decent work at night. So I just don't, I don't try to anymore, you know, and that's one thing I try to tell my students a lot is like, figure out when works best for you, you know, in terms of what part of the day and shoot for that, you know, like block off that time and, and be there during that time of day rather than trying to force it at a time when you know you're not turned on you know or you know you're not going to have the time um and if you don't do it every day fine but some regularity i think when it comes to that is it certainly benefits me and my work well yeah and that also makes sense that what you said about the regularity the it, routine is everything for me like i and when, when you let off by saying you kind of you like that routine i can definitely relate to that i mean if I, right now, I'm, I have not been getting up and writing. And so I, it's like, and I, and I can feel it too. I can feel it, I can feel it in like, in, in me emotionally, like in the back of my mind, I'm going, dude, you still have this thing that you're so, you've been working so hard on for so long that you're not chugging away at. And like, I just need to commit to getting back in the routine. It's like anything else, man. If I'm exercising all the time, I'm exercising all the time. If I'm writing all the time, I'm writing all the time. But if I'm sleeping in all the time, I'm sleeping in all the time. You know, not that I sleep in very much, but still that extra hour can make a difference. You talked about getting up at four. You know, if I got to be at work at 745, if I get up at five, I can write. If I get up at six, I can't. Yeah. You know, no, I, I know, man. You know, I taught middle school for a couple of years mm. um, in Philadelphia when we lived there. And mm. I had to be I had to be in the school building at 730 at the late, you know, like mm. that would that was pushing it. And, uh, so I had that same pressure, you know, I had to get up and, and I, I tend to do a little better with that pressure and that schedule, you know, to, to making sure I'm being consistent and getting up and doing it when, when I have too much time or space in my schedule, I'll slack and get a little lazy, you know? Um, cause it's like, well, I could wake up an hour later, you know, or I don't have to do it right now because I've got later in the day. So too much free time is a, is a tricky thing for me too. And, and it's a luxury, you know, to say, to have that kind of schedule and that kind of job where you can say, well, I've got too many hours, you know, but uh, I, it's different for everybody. And I know about myself that uh, I'm, I'm good for, you know, three hours of, of legitimate work, you know, like not mm. messing around on the internet or something. Like if I'm actually working and focusing for three hours in a day on, on a project, then that's good, you know, um, I could make myself sit at the computer for six hours if I had the time, but it's probably going to be three hours sort of wasted because I'm just going to delete whatever the next day or, or not really be concentrating or focused, you know? That seems like some kind of magic number. It seems like I, I don't want to misquote anybody, but other authors that I've had on the show, I feel like that's for the most part, that's what they say. Micah Schnabel did not say that. Micah said he like 
will get up and work all day. I mean, but he also will admit that he throws away a lot. Yeah. You know, in his in his process. Um, but okay, so let's talk a little bit about about teaching and doing, right? So that's something that I think is really interesting. Being a teacher myself, and then um, you as a teacher of writing, you know, Rick Bragg said about you. I've heard a lot of great old editors say that you can't teach writing, that it's born. Caleb Johnson can make you believe. Um, first of all, wow, <laughs> Rick Bragg said that, right? It's gotta feel great, but um, also, do, do you believe that um, about writing in general, that like there, there are some who are just born to do it? Well, you can't believe half of what comes out of Rick's mouth. <laughs> take, take what you will, take what you will. Um, man, I've gone back and forth a lot about this and it's, it's changed for me the more I have taught. Um, yeah, I think writing is definitely something you can practice and you can read widely and often and learn and you can improve, right? Mm. But I think that some people are born with keener eyes, mm. you know, with the ability to observe and take in life and then transfer that onto the page more naturally, maybe, you know, than others. Um, and, and I think you can practice that too, you know, journalists do it, do it quite often, but um, voice, you know, style, yeah, it can be learned somewhat, but also, you know, some people are born with a certain cadence, you know, uh, whether it's, it's verbal or, or what they get on the page and, no teacher, no matter how great they are, is 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 giving them that, right? Is is mm. is really improving that. It's just coming natural. So I guess it's a little bit of both, you know. I, I don't think you can, if you are born with that sort of voice, you know, or or that vision that you're able to get down on the page, it's not going to get you across the finish line alone. You still got to read widely and learn, and you still have to practice, and you still have to revise and and figure out um, how to sort of polish that as, as sharply as possible. Um, so I don't think you can necessarily have one without the other. Right. Um, but I couldn't, I couldn't go into the classroom, you know, a couple of days a week and sit there and talk to these students and give them feedback on their work. If I didn't think that writing was a practice that you could, work at and improve upon you know and and get better at quote unquote mm -hmm. the more you the more you do that and the more you you live and exist um i, I do think it's sort of a i don't it's not really a job in my mind it's a way of life like i think you have to really if you want to be great at it i think you have to be willing to commit to a, a particular way of of living that the folks who don't maybe aren't gonna be quite as great quote unquote or as artful maybe is a better better term uh, when it comes to what's on the page wow yeah so how much how much of the equation when it comes to voice specifically i guess how much of the equation do you think it is your upbringing and your environment especially in, at a young age i'm probably i mean for me it's it's a it's a huge part of it. You know, yeah. I, I can only speak for myself, but yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I grew up 
before the internet, you know, like in the country. And yeah. so um, talking and telling stories, you know, was just everywhere. It's what people did, you know? And so it, it's something I've lived with for a long time. Um, you know, it's, it's, I learned, I've said this before, but I really did learn from an early age that there was some cultural value in being able to tell a entertaining story or a sad story or a scary story, you know, something that would hold someone's attention. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I was taught by my mom that books were important and good quote unquote, you know, like keys to like living well, basically. Um, you know, it wasn't so much money or, or kind of anything like that, but it was, it was books. Right. And so I was in the library constantly, you know, after school, um, she would take me there and those things definitely matter. Right. And, but those are things folks can teach themselves and do for themselves later too. I was, I was privileged and, and fortunate that I didn't have to from an early age. Um, but those things can definitely be learned too. Um, if, if someone has the, you know, space and the, and the willingness to do it for themselves. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I, it's interesting, you know, you've spoken quite a bit about, um, in interviews about your upbringing and how you were, you spent so much time like in the woods and are you, did you grow up an only child or do you have siblings? I have a sister, a younger sister, but I was an only child for the first eight or so years of my life, mm-hmm. which was pretty, you know, I got a lot of memories from that time of it just being me, you know, yeah. and I didn't have, I do have cousins who are also younger. So I was the first grandchild, oldest cousin, you know, so there was this, you know, almost a decade of my life that I recall vividly of being the only kid around. Um, mm-hmm. So I felt like an only child for quite a, quite a while. And do you think that had an impact sort of on your imagination in one way or the other? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, the, it was cool because the adults in my life uh, interacted and played with me in imaginative ways, you know, like I had this great aunt who would, um, who would go in the woods with me and we would like, essentially like improvise, you know, we would assign each other characters and make up stories and like go on these adventures, you know, or, or my mom, you know, she stayed home to raise me a, a lot of my childhood. And so she would, get down with the GI Joes or the micro machines or something, you know, and, and sort of like get involved with whatever story I was telling with those toys. So I was fortunate in that way that I, I did have people, you know, adults who, who interacted. Um, but I didn't have other kids as much, you know, I had my friends at school and stuff, but not in the family and not at family gatherings for, for a while. And even when my sister came along and my other cousins, you know, for those first few years, they were babies. They weren't walking, they weren't talking, they weren't, you know, going off with me in the woods. So yeah, I mean, there was a long time I did feel kind of like an only child. And I guess I was brought up like one. Yeah. I, I, I have a half sister, but I grew up and she's a lot older than me and I grew up an only child. And I think that it did contribute to my own imagination because I just kind of had to, I mean, there were kids on the block and stuff. I, I didn't grow, I grew up in like a small town in central Florida. And before that we lived in Kentucky and it was a really small town in Kentucky and there really wasn't anybody around, you know, we had some land and there wasn't anybody around and there was a pond out back and there was, um, you know, you, you could ride your bike for however many miles. I don't know. In my, my little brain, it was forever, but, um, and there'd be another friend, but they're way far away and to get to them would be quite a bit, uh, you know, quite a hike. And so I think that did contribute for me at least to just like, 
to allowing my my imagination to go a lot of different places. And I think my my family encouraged it, but I I think in the the town I was in in Florida discouraged those kinds of things. And so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about place like. On this show, I, I like to explore as much as I can, especially with Southerners, like the duality of the Southern thing, as the truckers say. And, you know, it's not that, and, and it's a kind of a concept that I think Lee, for example, who we talked about earlier, talks about quite a bit and confronts head on. <laughs> you know, and I think you do in your writing as well. Like you don't shy away from discussing race, for for example, in Treeborn. You know, there's some some heavy racial themes in there that and some some things that when you grow up in the South, you're like wrestling with quite a bit. Um, and so I wonder like whether just the community in general was encouraging your creativity. It sounds like your family for sure was. Was your greater community encouraging uh, the creative process and, and you being a creative person? I had a few teachers in, in public school who, who definitely did, you know. Um, I mean, one of my earliest memories of, of writing was a uh, my first grade teacher, I kind of flew through the assignments every day, you know, I, I completed them much faster than my classmates. And so uh, there was kind of nothing to, to do, right? I would could just like sit there or whatever. So instead of just letting me sit there, um, she pulled me over to a side table and said, you know, write me a story um, and just kind of turned me loose. And that became my thing, you know, whenever I, and it kind of sort of became a, a you know, carrot, on, on, you know, on a stick for me a little bit, because I knew if I finished my work soon enough, you know, and there was extra time, I would get to go write stories, you know, by myself, like be in my head. And I enjoyed that. So I did that, you know, and I had others teachers throughout the years who English teachers who said, you know, they read my essays or, or papers or whatever in class and said, you're a good writer, you know, um, and that definitely helped a lot. Um, I also have a, an aunt, my mom's youngest sister, who she's closer to a sibling in, in terms of age. She's only eight years older than me. And uh, she is a poet and a teacher. And, and she was much more, she sort of like forged the way in terms of knowing about art and music and movies and books and things. Um, and then passing it down to me, you know, and mm -hmm. folks in the community knew that about her. They knew she was creative and uh, you know, I mean, sort of different for than other kids in, in the community. And so they sort of made that connection for me sometimes, you know, when they saw me, they, they said, Oh, you're like your aunt Jessica, you know, in this way. Mm -hmm. And that sort of tagged it to where I thought, well, like, am I, you know, and, and, and it sort of like made me proud, you know, and feel good. Cause I looked up to her. Um, we spent a lot of time together growing up. So there was that, but aside from her, there weren't people in the community who, my, my grandmama painted in oils. So she, she, you know, did oil paintings. Um, but aside from something like that, there weren't musicians in my family, at least not one still alive when I was around, there weren't creatives, you know, sort of making things. Um, and there certainly was no one around who it was like, hey, here's an example of a career path right. in the art. <laughs> you know, like that was, uh, that was not, that was just non-existent. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think that's so interesting because like there, in you know, there's so many folks like, uh, especially in Kentucky when I was, where I was born, but, and, and to a lesser extent, but I mean, to a, 
maybe not to a lesser extent in Central Florida, there were folks who were clearly creative people, like they were great, they were uh, great storytellers, like you mentioned earlier, or they had some other thing that they could do that was, they were, they were the ones, they were creating these things, but no one ever talked about the arts as any sort of career path. And you mentioned earlier the idea of like, that writing is this way of life. At what point did you, did you, was there a moment where you went, all right, I'm good at this and I'm going to chase this. Like, this is what I, I have to do, or this is what I want to do. Yeah. So when I went to, I went to college um, at the university of Alabama, when I graduated high school, me and my best friend from high school, Philip both went down there on partial scholarships. And uh, that was a big deal because no one else in our graduating class of 32 or 36 or whatever um, went to a four-year college out of, out of high school, you know, that some folks went to community college, other folks went to work, went to the military, you know? Um, and so it was a big deal and people, it wasn't just our graduating class, but in ones prior and then following just not many folks did that from my school, you know, just it, it so it was a big deal and I wasn't really ready for it, to be honest with you. Mm. And I thought I was going to be, I wanted to be a doctor because I was like, I have to have a job, quote unquote, that makes money, quote unquote. And this is a good career, you know, um, and I'd had people tell me that, you know, and I was uh, I was the salutatorian in my class. You know, I made good grades. And so it seemed like a natural thing. And I got to Alabama and I hated uh, the classes I was taking, you know, the science classes. I, I was doing horrible. I didn't want to study. I hated the labs. Um, I just it was not a fit. And, and that first year was not great. So I wound up moving home the next year and, and going to community college myself back home. And that was a real, uh, I was pretty ashamed of that decision at the time, you know, like it, uh, it seemed like I had failed, you know, mm -hmm. I'd gone off to Tuscaloosa, which is like 90 miles from where I'm from, but it might as well be Mars or something, you know, yeah, yeah. And, uh, it, it just, I felt like I'd failed, you know, I disappointed everyone, even though no one said that to me, that's sort of what I put on myself. And um, so I spent a year in, in community college and I was like, I don't really know what I'm going to do. Um, but I had, again, this great English teacher um, who's still a friend of mine today. And she had taught my aunt, I was talking about who's the poet and she had actually taught my mom too, who went back to school late in life and, and became an elementary school teacher and so she knew my family. She knew, you know, what was up, how I'd come back from Alabama. And she was very much a, a reader. Um, mm -hmm. She very much loved to go see, you know, serious films. And mm -hmm. she loved to talk about them. And she went to plays. You know, she was, she was just a much more cultured person than I had ever known and been close to in my life. And she kind of took me under a wing and we were friends. Even that year I went to college, you know, saw some movies together, went to concerts together um, and sort of encouraged me to write, you know? And, and so that was what I was kind of good at, you know? Mm -hmm. and, uh, so when I got back to Alabama, I was like, okay, what, what can I do that allows me to write? But also I, I do come from a working class family and I was going to have student loan debt and I, I, I couldn't just be an English major. I felt like, you know, mm -hmm. um, and I didn't want to teach cause that's what my mom did. You know? uh -huh, and, uh -huh. uh, <laughs> so somebody said, well, why don't you major in journalism? 
Mm-hmm. And it never occurred to me, you know, the newspaper was always in my house. My dad picked one up on the way home from work every day. I read it. I saw him reading it, but it just like never occurred to me that even though the names, the bylines were on the stories that that was a job. There were real people who wrote those stories and, you know, got paid for them. Um, and I thought, okay, I'll, I can do that. Like that's writing. I'll tell stories. Like it seemed, it seems like a, um, it seems like a good way to spend a life, but also there's money, you know, mm-hmm. enough to pay bills, which is not necessarily true. Yeah. Then, especially now, but this, <laughs> right. was my, this was my thinking, you know? Yeah, and yeah. so I did that. I went and, and I, that's what I declared as my major. And I started working at the campus newspaper and I eventually, uh, I had a teacher, another teacher there, Bill Keller, who I'm still great friends with that encouraged me. And I eventually got in Rick Bragg's uh, magazine writing class and he encouraged me and, and I was kind of off to the races from there. So that, that's when I, I decided I would, you know, write for a living, I guess, even though the living is really meager, you know, I graduated in my first job out of college was at the Selma times journal in Selma, Alabama, which is uh-huh. a daily newspaper. And yet again, I was woefully unprepared for what that was going to mean, you know, um, six days a week, you know, uh, publishing five, six stories a day, uh, in a place that I wasn't familiar with, you know, the, the online transition was just kind of starting to happen at newspapers. Um, it was just tough in a, in a lot of different, all my friends were still in Tuscaloosa. It was tough in a lot of different ways, but, um, that's that's kind of when I made that jump, I guess, were, were those couple years. Man, I lo- I'm so glad you said that because I think we have some young folks that listen to the show, young writers, and um, and I think or, or and, and writers and aspiring writers, and I, you know, I I hesitate to give advice ever because I'm not someone who considers himself much of an accomplished writer myself. But I think what you just said about I, what I do feel confident in saying is. I've got the best job in the world now for my day job. I love teaching. I love what I do. I love the time it affords me. I love the interactions every day. I feel fulfilled every day. And my mom was a teacher as well. There was no damn way I was going to be a teacher. Like that is the last thing I was going to do, right? I was not going to be a teacher. I I went to school and I majored in business. And I don't give a damn about business, Caleb. I I just majored in business because I was like, that's how you make money. Same kind, almost exactly the same in a different part of the world at a different time. I went through all of that shit. And then I ended up like majoring in political science and then ultimately getting a degree in political science with a minor in philosophy. And as I was studying philosophy, I was like, this is what I should have been doing. You know, this, I should have been doing this. I should have been studying English or journalism, or something else that was going to keep me fulfilled every day and fire me up rather than chasing money. Because now, I'm, I mean, it's not like I'm making money now. I'm a teacher, but I love my work, and I feel fulfilled every day. And if I, as I look back on it, you know, I ended up failing out of school because I, and then having to go back, you know, and uh, ultimately doing quite well, but I, I, I suffered quite a bit because I was chasing what other people thought I should do. You know, and even into my 20s, like I went to law school and graduated from law school almost as I look back on it because people said I wasn't going to rather than because I was super passionate about the law and just like what a silly reason to go, you know, but the the ego and the hubris for me, at least the ego and the hubris in that that time was like, oh, you don't think I'm going to go? I'm going to go, you know, and really prove them 
them wrong, getting all this debt that I have now from law school that I don't really use my degree for, uh, my degree in my life very much. But like, if I had it all to do over again, uh, that's the big thing. It's like just not chasing some sort of monetary value, also not chasing what other people's expectations might have been, you know? Um, and just going, this is the thing that, that motivates me, that moves me. I'm going to chase this thing. So I'm really glad you said that because I can, I can relate a lot. Yeah, it took me a long time to figure it out. And I definitely mm -hmm. made mistakes along the way. And um, I guess that's just how I was going to have to learn and figure yeah. it out was, was by doing it, you know. And, well, um, and somebody listening to this is, is hearing it and is still going to make the same mistakes we did, right? Like, <laughs> you know, like people probably told me plenty of those kinds of things and you do have to go through it, I guess. Yeah, totally. I mean, I, I think especially for a certain kind of person and depending on your background, you know, I really took a lot of I really took a lot of the burden of my family and, and our history and, and sort of social class onto my own shoulders. Um, more so than I probably needed to, but I, I was, you know, the first. Um, I was really like the first one of the first to graduate from a four year college, you know, from a university and get a four year degree and I wanted to do it the right way, you know, or what I thought was the right way, you know, the, the practical way, the way that would make money and, and move, you know, I would make more than my, you know, the, the, the capitalist American dream uh, of, of I would do better than my parents did, you know, which doesn't, doesn't exist now if it ever did and uh, financially anyway, but eventually I just realized what mattered more to me was living what felt like a good life and the best way to live for me is to have time to write, um, to live slowly as I can, you know, mm -hmm. and to spend a lot of time in my own head and in the heads of other people through their work that they put out. Mm -hmm. And do I think teachers should be paid more? Totally. Uh, and not just because I am one, but, right. but absolutely. Um, but also, it's just not the most important thing to me. You know, I, I need to be able to eat and I need to pay my bills and I'll take care of my kid. Um, but I don't need a whole lot of other yeah. stuff as long as I have that time in that. Um, really it's a, it's a community that I, you know, whether it's like the books and records and movies I have, you know, and have watched or the actual people that I've got to be close with that, that made them, you know, like that is mm -hmm. the most valuable thing to me in my life. Um, and I think it will continue to. to be. That's so cool. Um, music's come up a couple of times and I see a guitar there behind you. How often do you pick that thing up? Uh, probably more often than I should. Rathenate <laughs> from, <laughs> from working on whatever pros I need to be working on. Um, yeah, probably more, more than, I, than I should, but not enough to be more than a hack. <laughs> well, uh, but you didn't have musicians in your family, you said necessarily. So when did you when did you get that bug? Oh, I tried to get it as like in my early teenage years, and then I played sports in high school, so there's really no time for that, you know. And uh, when I moved back to college, I kind of tried to again a little bit, and mm -hmm. and for the college newspaper, I was always a big fan of music. You know, my aunt, who I've mentioned a few times, would introduce me to to all kinds of things. Um, and that I had no sort of access to or idea. She had a subscription to Rolling Stone, you know, mm -hmm. and, yeah, which was yeah. like pre-internet, the, the lifeline, if you lived in rural America to yeah. any kind of popular culture. And uh, 
so I'd always been a huge fan when I got to college and I was working for the campus paper I actually covered um I think I was called like an arts and culture reporter you know so it was like local music you know bands coming through things like that and I got to be friends with a lot of musicians and spent a lot of time around them and slowly you know wanted to try to like imagine my way into also playing some music I think Barry Hanna had had a quote that was like uh something like every every writer secretly wants to be a, a rock and roll star you know and I don't know it seems true for a lot of times <laughs> that I know um but I will but now it's like almost now some of the rock and roll stars are like no we we want to be writers you know yeah. and publish books too so it's like we're just trying trading places up in here or something that's um, funny that's funny are you ever picking at the guitar and some sort of idea that translates to a different project comes up uh not not really man not not really um i did uh i think i've only said this at like events so i guess i'll if i'm gonna say it now i'm gonna put it on the record <laughs> but uh i did uh i did take some of the lyrics i have written and put them in treeborn as belonging to characters who sang or wrote lyrics of some kind. Wow. And I did that mostly um, as sort of like a inside joke with some of my friends. Cause some of my friends from Tuscaloosa will, you know, give each other shit. Like, I guess seems to be kind of like a male thing to do oftentimes even, but you know, just really kind of giving each other hell. And they would say like, uh, like you're an okay songwriter, but you're a terrible singer. Like <laughs> you just read the the songs, you know, like just don't play them for us, you know, and give me shit. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to take those. I'm going to take your advice to heart and I'm going to put it in the damn book uh, here. And they, they picked it up and, and kind of knew that that was the case, but just, I guess the average reader didn't, but uh, that was one instance, but it's not something I like sort of intended to do. It just sort of happened, I guess. And then I was like uh, kind of an inside joke. I love that. I'm so glad you shared that too. Do you, so when your friends are giving you shit, is that just sitting around hanging out or do you have you play, do you play your songs out ever play, play at open mics or anything like that? Um, you know, back then it was sitting around just hanging out, but, um, eventually when I moved to Wyoming for, for my MFA, my graduate degree, um, I again got to be friends with, with some musicians there and there's this fantastic, uh, like, western bar downtown called the buckhorn and it's like if you imagine sort of a stereotypical western bar it's what it is like plate glass windows facing the street um you walk in it's real dark above your head on the wall is all kinds of taxidermy um the bar has a mirror behind it and there's a bullet hole in the glass in the mirror from when someone got drunk and was going to shoot their cheating spouse from across the street and they just like left the bullet hole in the mirror so they would have an open mic night there and, and me and some buddies who were musicians or other writers who played we would go down there on sunday nights uh, mostly because they had a, a drink discount if you played open mic um so i would do that some you know and i, I don't i don't do it with any regularity um it's more of just you know, back in the days when folks could safely hang out in, in the inside or somewhere together, you know, the guitar would come out or somebody would bring something, you know, and, and sort of 
pass it around and, and, and do that. Um, it's not, it's nice for me because I don't consider myself a musician at all. I don't think anybody who's heard me play would, but it's a hobby I can have and something to do that feels, um, it just feels better to do that than to like sit down and watch four hours of Netflix. Like I wind up feeling, you know, if, if I pick up a guitar and I'm playing around and singing or whatever, I feel better about myself having done that than I do if I like binge some TV, you know? Um, so yeah. it's a way to kill time or maybe procrastinate that, that I think is maybe for me a little more valuable than, than just like binging some TV or something. Uh, yes. And I, th I, I would say I, for me, I'd go even further and just say that it's, it's, it's cathartic. I'd say that it's, you know, uh, it's my spiritual, spiritual experience. I, I'm not a church goer. I, I, I play music, you know, I, I'm a rudimentary guitar player who gets a lot out of those seven chords that I feel comfortable with, you know, I'm and with, I'm with you. on Right. That. <laughs> <laughs> and I, right. I will say having a kid now, it's like, babies are so easily impressed you know so i was, couldn't impress my friends but uh, <laughs> it's nice to be able to pull out the guitar and sing a song or two and then you know have have somebody smile about it as opposed to kind of give me hell you know that's um, great and fun to you know we're always playing music around the house and, and it's fun to introduce this new human to to music we like you know and to that joy that that music can can play and I mean, man, I spent, I spent so much time in my early twenties going to shows and traveling around with bands and like it, it just, it was a kind of pivotal foundation for me when I did start to, to take myself more seriously as a writer and kind of commit to that way of life that I had been around, you know, they weren't prose writers necessarily, but I've been around these lyricists, these musicians who they also weren't afraid to be like, no, like I'm, I'm in a band or I'm a musician, you know, like we're playing a show, like we're going to do this and to kind of go for it in that way to, to see those examples since I didn't grow up with them in my community or my immediate family. Um, whether it was Lee Baines or, or my buddy Blaine Duncan, who was in Tuscaloosa, um, or, or just, you know, uh, Elliot and Matt Patton and all those dudes in the Dexatines. And, you know, these, these are guys who I wrote about in the paper and then they became friends and then they became, examples I needed of, of how to be writers and artists and, and how to and make things, you know, and, and, and do it um, and, and kind of go all in on it. And that was supremely important to me when I was in my early 20s. So those are the bands that you're talking about when you're saying you were writing about, you're like the Dexatines and Lee, how, what was that? I mean, at that time, like I was, now I feel like I have a connection to all of those folks, but not all of them, but I mean, I, you know, I, I know Lee kind of, and I feel like I, you know, I, I, I am in the same orbit as the Dexatines guys, but like when that was happening, it was just so exciting to me. Like those bands I was watching from afar and I just thought like, this is the coolest fucking thing. Like this is the sound that I always wished that somebody would make, but I didn't know I wished somebody would make it. What was it like at that time? It's crazy to look back on now, man, because at the time I felt like when it came to the Dexatines, at least, and I arrived in Tuscaloosa and started seeing them play shows, I felt like I was sort of late to the party because the, the famous bar, the Chucker in, in Tuscaloosa was shut down. Um, 
where, where the deck scenes kind of got their start to some degree. And the record shop down on, on the strip near campus had shut down, you know, where some of those dudes used to work and hang out. And so I felt like I had sort of missed out on mm. a bit of the Tuscaloosa uh, music scene glory days, you know, which I think is often the case in a college town because they're, they're, they're so people are coming and going all the time, right? There are these eras and these moments when, when everybody's there and everybody's playing and, and making things. And then people grow up and get married or they move away and get a job or, or whatever, ha- you know, life happens and, and college towns are transient places in the South, especially, mm-hmm. um, which can be cool, but it also means there's, there's fallow periods. But um, mm-hmm. I, I'll tell you, man, I'll, I'll never forget. Um, it's, it's total happenstance that, that me and Lee met and, and became such good friends. It's really crazy to, to look back on, but uh, I was going with, with the Dexatines to Athens, Georgia, because they were playing a show at the 40 watt club mm-hmm. and they were like, I wasn't writing about it. They were just like, come along, you know, and the truckers were playing a show in town that weekend. And I loved the truckers and I was like, sure, I will go and hang, you know, stay in our hotel room, just like hang out. And I was like, okay, that sounds great. And so I went and uh, wound up that Lee had been corresponding with, with Elliot from the Dexatines. Lee was still in New York in college at the time. And he'd been corresponding with him because Lee was thinking about moving back to Alabama. And, you know, he, he was playing music up there, but he wanted to, you know, come back and play music and, and, and write and stuff. And so, and he was a big fan of the Dexteens too. And um, Lee knew the Dexteens and truckers were playing in town too. And, and he came down from New York and he had a friend from high school in Athens. And so independently, you know, we were both in town to see these shows and we ran into each other, oddly enough, at a frat house because the Dexteens played like an afternoon crawfish boil at this frat house um, on campus and you know I definitely look like or wasn't hanging out with the UGA frat dudes so (laughs) Lee and I got to talking you know and he found out I was from Arlie which is like near Jasper Alabama and which is near Birmingham where he's from and we just kind of got to talking and we saw each other throughout the weekend and then it got to be um the, it got to be the day we were we were coming back and uh, leaving town and I was going back to Tuscaloosa and and Lee was like I need a ride to the airport you know and I was like well just get in man like I'll, I'll drop you off at the airport in Atlanta and we went back uh, through Atlanta and stopped and ate food um, and we just really hit it off in a great conversation and and those things will happen if you go to shows you know like that's one thing I love about when live music exists is because you meet people and you strike up these conversations and sometimes they turn into friendships and that's really cool but I, I still didn't expect it to be the kind of same thing this the thing it's turned out to be but Lee had told me he didn't talk much about his music or the fact that he he was a songwriter you know or, or, or sang or played guitar he really underplayed it to be honest with you and I got back to Tuscaloosa and I pulled up his old band's MySpace page this was how long ago it was yeah. and I listened to the three or four songs there and I was just like holy shit this guy's like he's the real deal this is amazing you know this isn't just some guy who's like yeah i've got a band or whatever like he's a real artist you know that's fucking smart and yeah Yeah, the the songs were were so great and um i was like okay when he moves back like this is i've got to see him play you know i i I didn't even think like being i was like a fan then you know and um 
he did move back and the first place I saw him play it was like it was a three-piece I think uh, a couple friends of his that uh they played this like I don't even it's like a bar slash restaurant some little venue in Montevallo which is this little liberal arts college town outside of Birmingham and I drove up for it and there weren't that many people there and it was kind of like a weirdly lit you know too bright for like a show kind of thing but it was amazing it was the best thing I'd ever seen live and uh, it only got better from there man it just like he formed bands and uh, I don't know it was looking back it's a it's a real lucky time to have met him that's amazing. What a great story. What year, about what year is that? Uh, two, 2005 to 05, 06, maybe. Um, okay. So that's, that's the truckers with Isabel still in the truckers. Yeah. 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 I mean, for folks listening, like to, to get context here and then Lee played with the Dexatines for a little while, right? Didn't he? he did. Yeah. Yeah. He yeah. played with them for a while. And, and the time he played with them, we actually lived together with a couple other dudes in this big, mm-hmm ramshackle house in in birmingham the south side of town and um he was writing a lot of the songs that went on to be on the first glory fires record and i was writing the stories that helped get me into graduate school and um yeah it was just a crazy time and then like shortly after that kind of around the time i moved to wyoming which was in 2011 for graduate Mm -hmm. school things were blowing up more and I'll, i'll never forget the year the the year before I moved, um, there's this dive bar. It's it's still the same name and same place now, but it's not the same kind of dive bar anymore, but in Tuscaloosa called Egan's and, um, it's been sold and is under new ownership and it's really lost its, its soul and, and Mm -hmm. kind of crowd of regulars. But, uh, the night that, that Alabama played Auburn in, in football, um, and Cam Newton was the quarterback at Auburn and, and led Auburn to an amazing comeback, which just destroyed my soul. <laughs> Lee and them opened, um, or no, they didn't open, but they they headlined and the band that opened for them was a band then unknown called The Shakes. <laughs> I watched the game and was extremely upset and tried to like drown my sorrows for a while. So I was a little late getting to the show and I just remember walking in Egan's, which is kind of like a cigar box of a bar. And then the shakes who went on to be the Alabama shakes were playing already and just being like, who the fuck is this? Like what, you know, like you, you walked in and you were just like, I'm not going to say I knew they were going to blow up and be like sure. Grammy winners and stuff, but you were just like, Oh, this isn't just like a yeah. regular opening band, you know? And then Lee and them played after. And of course, like tore the place down and yeah, uh, yeah but things like that, happened you know, at that time and place and it was yeah. super cool and lucky to have been there for it you know that's great man thank you for sharing all of that i you've i, I know you got to get back to the chaos but this has been such a pleasure um we usually end on you know speaking of music and books and all the stuff we talked at films we, we end on what what you're getting down on like what art has you inspired at the moment outside of your own work oh man let me let me actually go yeah, no, no, no. Let me grab something here. Okay. Um, oh no, my wife has it inside. Uh, hold on okay. one second. Um, so I read one thing you can do a lot of with a baby, um, if you can tune out the crying and, and the noise and stuff, is read actually. So I have been reading a lot these four months. Nice. Um, 
And so I read this trio of what I think of kind of like farm novels um, that, that have just, they all three sort of rearranged my thinking on, on what a novel can be. And they were so beautiful at the sentence level, which is pretty essential for me as a reader. Like if the sentences aren't lovely and interesting and there's not some kind of logic to them, I have a hard time sticking with it. So the one I don't have out here because my, my wife is reading it now is called The Meadow by James Galvin, who's also a poet. Um, and it's set in like uh, Northern Colorado, Southern Wyoming. Uh, it's just like a beautiful um, lyrical book um, of, of vignettes about this meadow and, and this sort of like parcel of land that different people live on and around. Um, and then this, this one, I, I do have a couple here. Um, this novel, Snake by Kate Jennings, okay. who's also a poet, um, is it, set on a farm in Australia. And it's just lovely and, and really sad too and heartbreaking. And then um, The Works of Love by Wright Morris is the other one. And this one's much funnier. It's, it's sad too. They're all three sad in their own ways, but this was much funnier if you if you like Charles Portis at all, um, who wrote True Grit and, and mm. a lot of other great novels, mm. it's kind of in that vein, uh, sort of like a dark rural humor. Um, so all three of those novels, just like I felt lucky to encounter them all in a row and to have them as this kind of triptych in my reading life nice. right now. Um, so I love those. And then I guess I'll just like give another shout out to Lee, who um, is having his next album mastered as we record this. And I didn't so, know that. That's awesome. Yeah. So I've heard, I've heard the songs and I have read the lyrics and I've heard different recordings and, and, and mixes and everything. So, and they're great, man. They're great as usual. And um, I don't know when they're going to release it, but I would imagine um, in the not too distant future. So um, I'm lucky to, to get a sneak peek at those and, and I'm sure you and everybody who listens will, will love them too. Oh, that's exciting. I, I, that, that motivates me to reach out to him and, and uh, get him on the show again. It's been years. I mean, it's, it's pretty wild to think that, that I, I was introduced to your work. I guess it was like, Treeborn came out in what, 2018? Is that right? 2018. So it would have been 2017 that he was telling me about it. I, I guess it would have been like the spring of 2017. It's one of those conversations that I'll never forget. I actually met him a couple of times and, uh, and the thing that I, that he has that quality that so many great interview subjects have where like, and, and just good people <laughs> where it's like, you're the only person in the world when, you know, when, when you're talking to him and I remember when, so anything he says, like, listen to this or read this. I'm like, All right. Yep. I'm on it. Um, and so I'm so glad we had that conversation and that led me to your work and that led to this conversation. I'm just really grateful for your time, Caleb. This has been such a pleasure. Me too, man. And, and thanks for doing it. Thanks for, for having me on. And, um, you know, the work you do is super important on here to, to kind of pass along these, these recommendations and, and, you know, bring together this community of, of folks who make things. And um, I'm just super grateful for it, man. Thank you. That means a lot to me. We'll get back to the chaos and um, we'll, we'll talk sometime soon, hopefully. Okay. Sounds good. <laughs> Have a good afternoon. Thanks. See you. i
Caleb Johnson, y'all. Thank you so much, Caleb. Thank all of you for listening. This was such an honor. I'm grateful that we have so many wonderful musicians on, but it's so cool to speak with other artists, especially authors. I mean, selfishly, I like mining the brains of authors uh, just so I can try to get better at my own craft. This was so much fun. CalebJohnsonAuthor.com for all things Caleb. I can't wait for that new project he was talking about. I'm stoked for it. Um, I don't blame him for going in, you know, not wanting to go into detail about it. Of course, you don't want to talk about your work in progress, but man, I am excited to to read that. Uh, Treeborn again, y'all. I, you know, usually, so here's an example of how much I love Treeborn. Usually, I order a book and then uh, read it, you know, especially if it's from uh, an like a newer book, right? So, if it's a classic, I might get it from the library, or if it's someone I don't know, I might get it from the library, quite frankly. But if it's someone like Willie Vlotten or Brandy Carlisle or, you know, all these folks that I've been reading recently, Will Johnson, uh, our friends Rod Picot and C.H. Hooks, uh, I, I always try to order a copy. And, and usually, once I read it, even if it's someone I, I love and appreciate and someone who's been on the show, Usually I try to find someone to pass that book on to, but with Treeborn, Treeborn's one of those that will forever sit on my shelf. I just spent so much time with that book and lived in it and loved it. Um, I remember moments reading it. You know those books that you you remember like sitting in a particular place reading or you might remember a mood that you were in at that, at that time? Um, that's how Treeborn is for me. So I, I can't recommend it enough. CalebJohnsonAuthor.com for all things Caleb. The song you're hearing in this episode is Whitewashed by our good friends Lee, Bain, Lee Baines Third and the Glory Fires. And that's from their album Live at the Nick. Big thanks to Lee, who obviously featured enormously in this episode for uh, agreeing to allow us to uh to 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 play this song as part of the show it just made too much sense right um i thought about reaching out to somebody local which i tend to do when we have somebody uh who's not um, a musician on the show i try to get you know promote some of my friends who are, are doing great work but for this one i was like i gotta reach out to to our boy lee and of course he didn't disappoint and uh, i know lee as as mentioned in the episode is working on some new stuff so Stoke for that, of course, one of our all-time great guests and one of the great dudes making music today. Marinadepodcast.com for all things The Marinade. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter. If you really like what we're doing, please consider joining our Patreon community, where for just a few bucks a month, you can gain access to our Patreon-exclusive show, Jason's Journey, where I talk about the moments that shape my creative life. If, uh, if you can't swing it, do all the free stuff, y'all. Um, follow us on social media like I mentioned. Uh, tell a friend about this show. Subscribe on your podcast app. That makes a big difference. Leave us a rating. Thank you so much to everybody who's left a rating, especially on Apple Podcasts, which is kind of one of the big ones. But wherever you listen to podcasts, if you can leave us a rating, five stars if you love what we're doing, that would be awesome amazing and it makes a big difference the biggest thing is just continuing to listen we have so many great episodes coming up the aforementioned willie vlotten is on the way we sat down with casey anderson again and it was so good i mean such a wonderful conversation we have just incredible things happening our first live uh patreon 
conversation with Seth Walker, our good friend who wrote this wonderful book, uh, Your Van is on Fire, that I highly recommend. Um, It's just getting better and better, right? So I've I've been proud of everything we've done, uh, but I also want to acknowledge that it just continues to get better, and that's thanks to all of you for listening. So thank you from the bottom of my heart. I, I appreciate you so much. All right, y'all, it's time for what I'm getting down on, the segment of the show where I talk about the art that is inspiring me at the moment. My partner Chris and I bonded over films when we first met. In the seven-plus years uh, since that day, we have made a tradition of watching Academy Award nominees together. We try to watch as many as possible across multiple categories. And uh, last week, we watched Nomadland, which won all the awards, including Best Picture. Um, It's good. But I didn't think best picture worthy. Um, Frances McDormand is outstanding as a protagonist. So I certainly believe that Frances deserves uh, all the awards for that. Um, But it didn't really move me as much as I kind of expected. And the next night, we kind of looked at some options. And then, uh, well, before I get to that, let, let me say another quick thing about about Nomadland and, and Francis McDormand. I'm not the first person to point this out, I'm sure, but I was thinking about it and like, she won Best Actress. And I was thinking like, why is there, isn't it like server, right? Like, why is there, we don't say waiter and waitress anymore. Why, why is there Best Actor and Best Actress instead of just Best Actor? And then it can include maybe double the number of people. And I guess maybe the counter argument is because there's been so much sexism in the industry that women would get shut out of that. And that's probably true. But at the same time, I mean, lots of women are, are doing amazing work that's better than the men. And there's this implication that like, they need their own category. I don't know. It's an interesting conversation. And if you disagree with me, I, I'm not actually not really taking much of a stance on this. I'm just curious about it. Um, but if you want to hit us up on Twitter or Instagram and, and and share your thoughts on that, please do so. It's just something I was thinking about as, uh, as we were watching the film. And then uh, after the fact, when I was kind of doing some research on it. The, the, the film that blew my mind, though, is called Another Round. It's a Danish film directed by Thomas Vinterberg. Um, it's it's about four buddies they're all high school teachers and they're disenchanted with their lives and so they decide to experiment with microdosing alcohol to make their existence a little more bearable it is hilarious and heartbreaking um just so good so perfectly acted and written it's just wonderful so check that out another round it's called it won um, best international film at the academy awards I've been listening to Jamestown Revival's Fireside with um, Louis L'Amour EP, which was inspired by the collective collected short stories of Louis L'Amour Volume 1. I picked up a copy of that book from bookshop.org and um, and I'm listening to both the record I'm listening to the record and reading the book at the same time. There's just something about frontier stories, y'all. They're so romantic to a Florida boy, and there's so much of a mess there, but it's uh, it just feels like a different country, right? Even though it's – I've been out west plenty, and I've, I've been lucky to spend a lot of time out west, but 
that wasn't my existence growing up. And of course these stories are taking place like in the wild, the wild west, so to speak. So, um, I, I can't say, uh, enough about that. And, um, finally my vinyl copy, I say finally, no, that's not true. I have a couple more things. I'm kind of on a roll today with what I'm, what I'm getting down on my vinyl copy of Cooley hood and Isbel live at the Shoals theater came in about a week ago. If you're into vinyl, if you're like a collector or you like physical copies, this thing is so beautiful. Each, each disc is a, uh, each vinyl is a different color. And, um, and then there's a gorgeous painting on the front and it's, it's just a, like the, everything about the construction of it. If you're a vinyl head is so beautiful. And then the record's crazy. Like I can't imagine being there that day and what that would have been like. It, it, I love it so much. I keep listening to it. Um, just three of the greatest songwriters, uh, of my generation easily. Um, I I've said this before, but I'll say it again. I think Mike Cooley would be considered one of the greatest country songwriters of all time if he was a country songwriter, so to speak. Like his songs are really country songs and he's in a rock band, but like Jesus Christ, like pound for pound, I'd put him up against just about anybody. What an amazing writer. Um, the stories that he tells the characters and all three of those guys. I mean, I, I've been such a fan of the truckers and, and, and all three of those guys, solo work and, uh, just everything that they do, as you know, right. I'm, I'm pretty obsessive fan of all three. Um, but y'all listen to that. I'm sure you already are. If you're listening to the show, but live at the Shoals theater, if you're not, if you listen to the show because you know me or because you, um, you know, you like the creative process part of it, but you don't listen to that Americana kind of music that I gravitate toward. Check this out just from a pure, brilliant standpoint it's absolutely beautiful i got one more for you i'm a little late to the amethyst kia party um better late than never just can't get enough of uh the two most recent singles hangover blues and wild turkey from the forthcoming record uh wary and strange that's all i got for you for right now oh no it's not true one more fine one more um the, the Ken Burns Hemingway documentary I finally finished last night. I, I, I'm pretty sure I mentioned it on the last episode. But this, this documentary is so beautifully done, as Ken Burns typically does. And, and if you're a fan of, of writing or of uh, uh, pop culture or of just about anything that would potentially bring you to this show, you'll love that documentary. I'm, I happen to be a huge Hemingway fan, and it got me thinking a ton about – the world we live in now and how I would have approached someone like Hemingway if they were, you know, writing content in a contemporary way right now. I was just thinking about like Ryan Adams, for example, um, whose, whose art I love so much, but who I've tried not to, to, I haven't spent any money on his work. Um, you know, in the last last few years since the revelations about about him came out, it just got me thinking about not necessarily separating art from artists because you know we've we've spent a lot of time on that on the show, um, but thinking about like how we put into historical context people who weren't so good, <laughs> and then also what what weight we give to the fact that 
so many of those people, Hemingway included, behaved in the way they did in large part because of their upbringing and or some trauma. In his case, a lot of it was physical trauma, but there are so many other layers to who he was and how he ended up the way that he did and, and, and died the way that he did. And so like giving grace to people for going through trauma and dealing with that trauma and maybe being pretty shitty as a result, acting out in pretty shitty ways while also recognizing that shitty behavior is shitty behavior is a really hard thing. And it was, it was amplified in my mind and my, in my consciousness watching this particular film because I love Hemingway's work so much and I've spent so much time diving into the myth of Hemingway every trip to Key West and in my 20s I was in Key West all the time every trip to Key West just going on the Hemingway tour and thinking about in Italy too when I when I was able to spend a few weeks in Rome in law school I just I, I used to call it getting my Hemingway on. I would like walk around, walk around drinking wine and writing. <laughs> it sounds so stupid and pretentious, I guess, but, but it wasn't, it was fun. <laughs> it was fun, you know, and, and nothing good came out of it in terms of art, but, but it was part of my process and part of me becoming who I am now as, as a creative. And a lot of that, not only those experiences, but just reading his work are due to Hemingway. So check that out if, if you're into Hemingway uh, for sure. But even if you're not and you're just into the creative process or, or questions about, about just sort of how we, how we reckon with the behavior of people who create great art and how much that does and should matter, check out Kim Burns' documentary. I love you all so much. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, go out and create something. Cheers, y'all.